This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. This is part two of a three-part exploration of some of the key lessons learned in the first year of GDPR going live. In this episode, we take a look at why DPIAs are so critical and are actually becoming more critical, how uh, subject access requests and DSRs are very good for you to comply with, and then perhaps most interestingly, respect the 72-hour time limits and respect the time frames that GDPR sets out. Hope you were able to listen to part one of our three-part series, and you'll join us again for part three. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Jonathan Armstrong back for another episode of Life with GDPR. We are in a middle posting of a three-part exploration of some of the lessons learned Jonathan has garnered over the past uh, six to 12 months as GDPR has been live. And uh, today we're going to start with uh, number four on Jonathan's list, which is DPIA everything. So Jonathan, that's somewhat long-winded introduction. Uh, Welcome back. Thanks, Tom. And I think it is a cumbersome one to understand this. So under GDPR, there's a process called a data protection impact assessment. That's similar, if not identical, to a procedure called a privacy impact assessment that has existed for a good 10 years now in places like the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And what the DPIA process does effectively is to walk you through a process of looking at the risk of doing any particular thing. So let's say, for example, you're thinking of moving to Office 365 for your corporation's email, then we know that Office 365 has had some security issues recently. A number of our clients have suffered from that. So you would go through a process where you identify the risks involved in putting data into Office 365 and how you're going to remediate them. So you might be saying, um, you know, employees might be concerned that their data is going to work overseas a remediation might be to talk it through with them and try and um, get an acceptance from them. You might say the system's likely to be less secure. We're going to address that by putting more security resource behind it. We're going to reconfigure default settings, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always a good experience to do a data protection impact assessment whenever you're doing a process that's likely to involve uh, data. In some respects, uh, in some cases, it will be mandatory under GDPR. In some cases, it's simply uh, advisory. But you have to look creatively at the risk. You have to make sure that those responsible for the particular data process are under DPIA. So this isn't something down to a compliance professional 
unless they're the process lead. If, for example, it's a helpline, then that probably does sit with compliance. But if it's an HR application, then obviously the risk analysis should sit with HR. And what we've often found is that after a data breach, then the regulator or the customer, let's say you're processing data on behalf of somebody else, will ask to see the data protection impact assessment. So make sure it's done, make sure it's robust, make sure it's something that you'd be happy to show a regulator. And obviously it's meant to cope with every eventuality. That's um, unlikely to be foolproof. So you might need to revisit the DPIA and improve it if you do have a data breach. And again, uh, DPIAs are starting to be a feature of some of the cases that we're seeing. So, Jonathan, uh, is the regulatory analysis of the DPI, DPIA not simply uh, binary, do you have one, do you not have one? Are they actually looking at the uh, uh, sophistication of the analysis, the sophistication of the uh, individual investigations or facts, and then the sophistication of at the end when you put together the the facts that you discovered with some analysis to come up with some conclusion? I think it's a little bit like, you know, maths or, as you would say, math in school, in that if you can show workings out that look credible, even if you reach what a regulator might consider to be the wrong result, you'll get credit for going through some sort of a process. There's no mandatory process that you have to go through although some regulators have suggested templates that you can use. Some of them are better than others. Uh, it's obviously important that the process is robust. The, uh, some existing processes are not subject to mandatory DPIAs yet. There's all sorts of debate as to when they come within the GDPR regime. As a rough rule of thumb, the European regulators were going to suggest that every process comes within the GDPR regime three years after date of implementation. So that would be roughly 18 months from now. But they do say that if you're using an existing process in a different way, then you should do a DPIA. So for example, if it's a payroll, but you're going to move the location of the price processing from the US to Manila, then, then that might trigger a new DPIA. So there's no set process. There is credit for honest endeavor. And, um, and it's not a frightening process once you get started and once you get used to it. Jonathan, in the uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption world, in the export control world, in the money laundering world, the concept of a risk assessment, I think, is, is fairly well known. And it's becoming uh, more ubiquitous in terms of if there's a new business opportunity, if you move into a new geographic area, if you have a new product or service, you'll do a new risk analysis limited to that, those facts, but it will give you a handle on what your risks may be in any of those disciplines. Does the DPA, DPIA process lend itself to that uh, smaller, more com compartmentalized assessment or uh, do you really uh, need to step back and, and look at the corporate-wide bigger picture each time you perform a DPIA? 
Yeah, it, it's usually the former, not the latter. So you normally use doing a DPIA just for one process or for a series of connected processes. But your remediation plan is often common to a number of different processes. So, for example, you might be looking at, let's say, some processing of HR data. You might be looking at some processing of customer data. And let's say you're looking at surveillance cameras. There might be three different processes involved for that data. But the commonality might be that you're relying on the corporation's in-house security team to add discipline. You do, you're relying on, let's say, the finance team to do financial due diligence on the supplier, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes, you're looking individually at each process, but you're picking tools from the corporate toolbox to remedy issues that you're seeing along the way. Is this something that uh, should be used in, uh, in an earlier podcast? We talked about mergers and acquisitions, for instance. Uh, Can a DPIA used in that situation or is because of the level of granularity, do you actually have to own the data that you're looking at? No, I think that's a great idea. Um, where, where now it's, it's now more common when you've got a vendor to ask to see a specimen DPIA from them. So let's say I'm going to um, put all of my HR data in, let, let's say I'm going to put all my travel data in Concur, then it's more common to say to Concur, okay, you must have been around the DPIA block a million times now. Show us what a DPIA might look like for the data processing that you're going to do on our behalf. So it's common to ask a vendor whenever you're doing a, a new process that's being outsourced. And also, I think we're going to see it more common in the M&A situation. Um, we have a client involved in one at the moment where they have asked to see the DPIAs, the different processes uh, pre-acquisition, and I think we're going to see more of that. Jonathan, if I could, I'd like to turn to our next topic, which is do SARs and DSRs real good? Uh, what did you mean by that? So what I meant by that is that um, subject access requests and data subject requests uh, have been around since pre-GDPR days, but GDPR extends the rights of individuals to ask for the data that you have on them. And we're increasingly seeing that good corporations have a good procedure to deal with these type of requests, but also to see what the requester is trying to get at. So we have seen in a number of situations people who have some inkling of a security issue use their GDPR rights to find out whether there is that issue or not. We've also had a lot of press around people using subject access requests almost as a type of compromise in itself. That isn't the fault of GDPR. It's the fault of corporations not having the right procedure, but we are seeing people use subject access requests to try and unlock data from a corporation. So what you have to do, I think, is get a proper procedure in place to make sure that you're managing subject access requests and other data subject requests, but also have some centralized team 
who are looking to learn lessons. And some of the figures involved can be quite staggering on the number of requests from individuals for data. For example, uh, Spotify, and it uh, apparently has told the Swedish regulator that it has had more than a million requests. So obviously you can't get meaningful data on trends or potential security issues from a million requests unless you've got some good management information, management reporting system behind that that's helping you use data subject requests and, uh, and subject access requests in particular as an early warning sign of, of where there might be issues. Who, who would be capable or competent to do that analysis? Well, I think that that is a work in progress for many corporations. And we know some that have got it wrong. You know, we know that data protection authorities have already started investigations in this area. Cambridge Analytica is probably the most well-known. The Metropolitan Police uh, in the UK have had problems with their subject access request procedures. So we even know that um, you know, you know that very competent law enforcement authorities are struggling to deal with these requests properly and get the you know proper trends and management information out of them. I think this is a work in progress. I think technology will help. Um, for full disclosure, we're exploring some technology at the moment that might help with these type of requests of getting management information from them. But I think that the volume has taken many by surprise. My gut feel is that Spotify wouldn't have planned for a million requests. And obviously, they're now having to backfill systems to deal with them. Is there any potential relief for uh, this number of requests, or is this something that's sacrosanct within GDPR? I think it's a core of GDPR. The subject access request system was a core of the uh, of the 98 uh, directive as well. What changed is that they became free. And previously, you could charge a nominal fee in some countries. Whilst it was only a nominal fee, that put a lot of people off and also made it more difficult to automate the process. But now we've got a number of players who are offering to make requests on your behalf, often for free. And I think that's part of the increase in volume. So I think it is a significant issue that's here to stay. Um, obviously, organizations have to have processes and procedures to deal with subject access requests in terms of the response. But I'm suggesting that they should also use that as an intelligence gathering situation to work out where there might be security issues. You know, for example, I know that um, in one large breach, uh, subject access requests were made from people who suspected there might be an issue to see if the corporation disclosed that there was an issue. We're likely to see class action lawyers use the same techniques as well. What about uh, uh, ancillary effects of subject access requests or right to be forgotten, I suppose? would even be more applicable for um, all of those Russian mobsters who uh, mm -hmm. uh, use that process rather than the 15-year-old girls who uh, may have uh, had pictures taken with their tops down. Is that something that uh, you're seeing as well? I think that's definitely the case. I think right to be forgotten particularly uh, is being used by 
um, people to forget their past, and that might be Russian mobsters, it might be people who've been involved in criminal processes, it might be people who have, you know, real estate developers who ripped off people and want the chance to do so again. So um, it, it's purely anecdotal in my uh, mind, but um, from those requests that we are seeing, the majority are from people with something um, murky that they wish to hide rather than somebody who's made an innocent mistake. And of course, um, some of those promoting GDPR um, said that this was to protect um, girls who taken selfies when they were, let's just say, lightly clothed but drunk. Um, and, and many of us told uh, those at the Commission at the time that this could be used by miscreants to clear up episodes in their past. Um, we weren't, um, we, I think we were listened to, but largely ignored. And regrettably, I think that's proved to be one of the real downsides of GDPR. You know, we already know that some individuals have tried to remove references to their past, and that causes all sorts of issues in a bribery context, in a money laundering context, etc., uh, etc., et which I, I guess we're just going to have to work through as we progress. Jonathan, if we, could, if we could turn now to our next topic, which is respect the time. And uh, I think the, the issue of time is one that, while it should not have surprised any Americans or American corporations, they still seem to be somewhat bewildered by the 72-hour reporting requirement. So uh, I was wondering uh, what your thoughts might be on respect to time. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly the point, I think, uh, Tom. I think those people who did have processes and procedures in place, and I think they were the minority, their plans were predicated on responding to a regulator within around a month. Because obviously, as we know, data breach statutes have existed in the US or in many states in the US previously. And the time limits varied state by state, but they were much more generous than the 72 hours, which is the assumption under GDPR. So I think we have seen some regulators try and um, not weaken the 72 hours, but ask people not to be obsessed by time. The Irish regulator, for example, has just issued some new guidance. But at the same time, regulators can offer people uh, some leniency the difficulty you always have under GDPR is guidance from regulators is simply guidance. So guidance is guidance, law is law. And eventually it will be the courts, I think, that determine things like reasonable delay. Uh, and we're not likely to have uh, leeway, I don't think, in many cases, particularly where, you know, in cases like the Talk Talk case that I mentioned in an earlier episode, it's readily apparent that something bad has happened that is most likely to be a data breach. The other issue that we often see in breaches at the moment is corporations trying to somehow extend the 72 hours by the use of different time zones. So they might say, 
Ah, well, the breach took place in the UK. So the 72 hours expired at 8 a.m. UK time. But because we're a Californian HQ'd entity, we then get another eight hours. So we get 80 hours because we get extra time for the time difference. Well, that just simply isn't true. The most ridiculous manifestation of that I've had, which I, I think I've mentioned on one of our chats previously, is a US corporation who said they had had advice from counsel in the US uh, who was meant to be a, quote, expert in GDPR, who said that there was a specific provision of GDPR that said you had to report a breach within 72 hours unless it was over Thanksgiving weekend when the time limits were extended. Now, I, I find it utterly crazy that anybody would believe that. I find it utterly crazy that anybody would call themselves a GDPR expert and they even say that. There's, I mean, for the avoidance of doubt, there is no exception. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend does not feature in GDPR. Um, you don't get leniency for weekends. You don't get leniency for Easter, for Christmas, for Passover, for Eid. There are no ex exemptions to the 72-hour rule. And that means oftentimes that organizations are working around the clock outside their normal time zone. So when you're assembling your team, and we talked about that earlier, you've got to plan for responding around the clock. And obviously, you've got to be ever mindful of the time. Um, we have a, um, a, a breach management tool that some clients use, and we change the colors of the screen layout so that people know when they're approaching the time limit. And I think things like that are a useful investment. You know, the, there could be a material difference between reporting a data breach on 71 hours versus 73. The regulators got the power to impose a specific fine for you being late, even if your procedures and processes were otherwise okay. So do respect the time and assume that the 72 hours is a hard and fast rule, unless you're certain that you're likely to get um, some leniency from regulators and from the courts. So Jonathan, the uh, I think one of the great frustrations of American consumers has been U.S. corporations um, basically hiding their data breaches uh, for some period of time in an attempt to manage the situation. Uh, has the GDPR 72-hour deadline really uh, helped to ameliorate that problem, or is your sense that American companies really still haven't understood the implications of that deadline within the context of GDPR? To be honest, I think it's a mixed bag. I think many, um, I think many U.S. corporations are getting used to it, still are not, and some of them are saying things like, "Oh well, our um, lead regulator is Arkansas, and they allow 42 days." But by the way, I'm not sure whether that is true in Arkansas, but I'm using that as a hypothetical example. So we'll do stuff in 42 days because that's our main regulator. But they don't focus on the fact that they will also have a lead regulator in the EU and that under local state law, the fine might be relatively insignificant versus 4 or 6% of global annual revenue under GDPR. So I think... 
you know, some see, um, I heard somebody say that GDPR was um, the last move of a continent full of imperialists or something like that. Um, and in some respects, that's a valid concern, you know, that Spain and the UK and the Netherlands uh, and Italy have had a history of making other parts of the continent dance to their time and their tune. And maybe GDPR is, you know, the modern day equivalent of that. But it, but if you're taking a decision not to meet the 72-hour time limit, all I'm saying is do that consciously with your eyes open. There could be occasions when you're going to delay making the report. But in most cases, a provisional report in time is better than a full report outside. Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thanks very much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR, where we took up part two of our three-part exploration of lessons learned from the first year of GDPR. I hope you'll join us for our final episode on this topic. If you have any questions, you can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at cordery.com. I hope you'll join us again in our next episode where we take up part two in our three-part exploration of the top 10 lessons learned from GDPR in the first year of GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.